Jewish Latin Princess episode 187 summer playlist with author Alexandra Zapruder. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at jewishlatinprincess.com, your host, Yael. Hey guys, welcome back to Jewish Latin Princess. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. It is the end of summer and it's the month of Elul. We are getting ready for the beginning of the school year and more importantly, for the month of Tishrei. I will be away for the next two weeks on vacation and leaving you with three episodes per week a summer playlist that I've curated, going back through the archives and going, hmm, I really, I remember liking this episode so much and or this guest, she was such a pleasure and I loved what she had to say. And this this episode definitely needs a spotlight shine onto it. So I, with that thought, I curated a list of a summer playlist list for you guys and added these six episodes. Not easy to choose, but definitely these six shows I'm leaving you with were some of my favorites from the archives. Archives. And you know, we've been here for a while. I'll be back the week of August 23rd with regular programming, interview, mini-sodes, and Ask Yael. Enjoy this awesome summer playlist right here. Alexandra Sapruder, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. I'm catching you back in Washington after traveling. I mean, how many cities have you been in the last few weeks? I don't know. I think it was a good at least at least 15 in the last few months. But um, I'm not, you know, honestly, I've kind of lost track. Lost track. Amazing, amazing. And I got the chance to hear you speak when you were in Houston about your new book, 26 Seconds, A Personal History of the Zapruder Film. And so, Alexandra, before we get to the Zapruder film, to your family, um, to your experience writing the book, I want to, I want you to set the stage for listener, listeners a bit because my guess is that a lot of my audience did not experience President Kennedy's assassination. I didn't. Um, so, um, tell us, take us back in time. Tell us about that memorable day and what was your grandfather doing that day, which then led to what we know today as a Sapruder film? Well, I should begin by saying that I also was not alive at the time of President Kennedy's assassination. I was born in 1969, so six years later. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather died 11 months after my twin brother and I were born. So I didn't know him. Most of what I have learned about this history comes from research. But my grandparents were living in Dallas at the time. My grandfather was a Russian immigrant. He came in 1920 at the age of 15 from Russia. Mm-hmm. And from a very poor Jewish family, very humble beginnings. But by the time 1963 rolled around, he and my grandmother had been living in Dallas for more than 20 years. And he he was a dressmaker, like so many other Jewish immigrants. And he had, um, you know, worked his way up from nothing to have attained the middle class by that time. Mm-hmm. He happened to, his office was just adjacent to Dealey Plaza. So he was, um, 
you know, working in a building at 501 Elm Street. And he knew, of course, that the motorcade was going to pass directly by uh, where his office was located. And he was also, by then, a very um, avid home movie maker. So, and of course, a person who loved President Kennedy. So he decided to go down to the plaza with his brand new um, movie camera to see if he could catch a glimpse of the president, which, of course, he did and got, you know, certainly much more than he than he intended. Mm-hmm. And I heard you say that originally he had forgotten the camera and it was his assistant who reminded him or, or your grandmother, maybe. What was it? It was his assistant. He actually hadn't forgotten it, but rather had decided not to bring it. He was someone who had a somewhat hesitant uh, personality. He was a little bit, um, he tended to kind of hang back and he liked to be sort of encouraged or pushed to do whatever it was that he wanted to do in the first place. And so it was, it's confusing because both my grandmother and his assistant were both named Lillian, mm-hmm. but it was his um, longtime assistant, Lillian Rogers, who encouraged him to go home and, and get the camera and then come back to Dealey Plaza to film. So that's how it happened. And, you know, it was a lot of things were like that in his life um, that he kind of hung back and and then was encouraged to, um, you know, to go home and do whatever, as I said, whatever it was that he wanted to do to begin with. So I think this is an interesting detail of his character because it's almost like left to his own devices, he would have not been the person to capture this monumental event in U.S. history, but rather it's almost like I feel like it was divinely ordained, like he w- he had to be the one for reasons that are beyond our comprehension, obviously, but um, there was something bigger and greater happening here. Do you feel like that a little bit? Well, um, I can see why why one would think that, and it certainly, um, it's certainly something that people have said to me before. I think um, I don't, I don't tend to think about things quite in that way, but I think it is very good for history that he did end up being in that particular place at that particular time. And I think so often monumental moments in history do happen in just that way. It's just a confluence of events that, you know, if one thing had gone differently, the entire history would have been different. So that, that is certainly true in this case. Right. So talk to me a little bit about your grandfather's character, because so much of the story here, I feel like it was a Kiddush Hashem, it was a sanctification of God's name through your grandfather and the admirable way that he managed the situation. There were some so many moral decisions that he had to make. Talk to us about those decisions and how he handled them. Well, you know, it certainly was um, a situation that required enormous strength of character. He was traumatized and shocked, of course, by witnessing the president's assassination. And then he was immediately in a position where he had to figure out what to do with this, um, this film, which was not yet, of course, as significant as it would become, but he knew that it was something that the federal authorities would want to see. And I think he, he said about, um, you know, I think he had a very strong moral character and he, of course, was steeped in um, Jewish ethical tradition mm-hmm. brought up as he was. So 
his primary obligation was a civic one, I think. He felt very strongly that he needed to be in touch with the Secret Service and make sure that they had copies of the film, which he did. And then there was a problem for him because the media wanted access to the film and they wanted to purchase it from him. And he felt concerned that sharing the film with the wrong party couldn't end up, could result in its being sensationalized or exploited in ways that would be uh, harmful to the Kennedy family. On the other hand, he couldn't really keep the film because there were people from the media, you know, already beginning to, to pound on his door. And on top of all of that, selling it meant profiting from this tragedy, which felt morally complex um, at the very least to him. So he had to juggle all of those things. And his decision at the end of the day was to sell it to Life magazine because he felt that they could be trusted to handle it responsibly. And then he took part of the money that he earned for that and gave it to the widow of um, J.D. Tippett, who was the police officer who was killed in the Texas theater by Oswald. Mm -hmm. And of course, this was um, a mitzvah um, that, you know, he felt that it was an opportunity for him to make a donation that he would not have been able to do otherwise. Amazing. So, so many layers of decisions that your grandfather had to make. I mean, first of all, he knew that the president was dead before the entire nation did, right? Before it was publicly announced. For sure, for sure. Right. And then it's not like nowadays where immediately, like he's holding on to this film. He hasn't been asked for the film directly yet. He himself knew to go to the federal government. It wasn't like he was hunted. <laughs> Right. That's, that's right. He was approached on Dealey Plaza by a reporter. Mm-hmm. And the reporter's request about the film, I think that kind of snapped him out of his initial shock. And he said to this reporter, you know, I need to be in touch with the federal authorities. And this gentleman, Harry McCormick, knew the head of the Secret Service in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And so that's how um, my grandfather was put in touch with Forrest Sorrells, who Then it took the whole rest of the day. I mean, the other way in which this is not like today is that, of course, it was an actual reel of eight millimeter film, which was laborious to develop. And it took them the rest of the day to get the original developed and then to get duplicates made and processed so that by the very end of the day, by nine or 10 o'clock that night, he was able to bring two copies of the film to the Secret Service in Dallas And then he went home with the original film and one of the copies. And then at what point does he start talking to Life magazine? And then why Life magazine of other um, media companies? Well, over the course of the day, he began to be approached through various, um, you know, mechanisms by members of the media who called or who tried to find him and, and express their interest in the film. But When he got home that night, he was reached by phone by a gentleman called Richard Stolle, Dick Stolle, who was the L.A. bureau chief of Life magazine. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to see the film. And my grandfather agreed to meet him the next morning at his office. And I think my grandfather felt, as many people did, that, you know, Life magazine was a very beloved pictorial magazine. It was trusted. It had a special relationship to the Kennedy family having, 
you know, published many, many, many hundreds of, of images and, and of course stories about them over the years. And so I think he felt that it was, um, you know, that this was a media outlet that could be trusted to, mm-hmm. uh, to handle the film responsibly, which, which they did for the most part. Okay. So then he, so he ends up, um, agreeing to sell, to selling them the film. And then he gives a portion to Tzedaka. Um, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking when I first heard you speak and being struck by the, the way things were during these, that time and I don't mean by the speed of which these things transpire but just the cultural sensitivity to things that frankly we wouldn't be sensitive to like nowadays we would see these images that could be really shocking and we might not even be shocked by them but back then it was a different story and that also played into this whole thing right yes absolutely I mean of course the film is is incredibly graphic um, and violent and this was something that you know, there had never really been anything like this before that was, you know, in mainstream circulation. And my grandfather first and Life Magazine second, you know, was were very concerned and felt very strongly that this was not something that the American people should see. Mm. Both too violent and too graphic for public consumption, but also that it was very disrespectful to the memory of the president. And so that is something that, that played into not only my grandfather's hesitations, but ultimately life magazines decisions about which images to, to publish in the pages of life magazine and to keep the film as moving footage from being seen by the public. Now, of course, over time, culture changed, norms changed, you know, society changed and it became more and more difficult to withhold those images from the American people, especially as more rumors and concerns about a conspiracy began to swirl. So within, you know, several years, there was a lot of pressure to make the film available um, to Life Magazine, or for rather for Life Magazine to make it available. But that concern uh, really evolved over time. And then, but the Life magazine did not yield to the pressure. My understanding is they sold it back to your grandfather. Is that how it worked? Um, they did not yield to the pressure, although, and, and they were under an enormous amount of pressure from other networks, from the public, from people who wanted to examine the film um, to try to understand better what had happened to the president. By 1975, my grandfather was gone. He died in 1970. But by 1975, there were many bootlegs of the copy, uh, many bootleg copies of the film that were circulating. And um, it became too much for Life magazine to be policing those uh, those copies and also withstanding the the pressure that came with the change in time. So ultimately, they returned the film to our family. They sold it back to our family for a dollar. Oh and it's my father's responsibility to, um, to manage public demand for the film and decide how and when people should be allowed to, to use it either for nonprofit study and teaching purposes or for profit, um, you know, on commercial television and in movies and the like. So, so first year Grandfather, how much did he get from Life Magazine, by the way? I didn't ask you. It was $150,000, and uh, he 
donated twenty five thousand of it to uh, to Jade Tipp's widow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then your father is now the guardian of the film, um, and many years later he took the reins, and there was another. profitable transaction for your family. What went on there? So my father was responsible for the film from 1975 until through the 1990s. And he, during that time, made the film available for free to anyone who wanted to use it for study or for um, nonprofit purposes. And as I said, he, when it came to commercial television or uh, movies, he charged a fee. In 1992, there was a law passed, the JFK Act, that made all of the material that was related to the Kennedy assassination available, um, anything that was in the holdings of the federal government, immediately became available to the American people. We placed the original reel of film in the National Archives for Safekeeping in 1978. And when that happened it raised a question of whether or not the federal government had presumptively taken the film from our family because it was in the holdings of the National Archives and made it available to the American people. So this triggered a a five-year conflict, really, with the government and our family about the ownership of the film. Who owned it? Did we own it or did the the government own it by virtue of, of having taken it by the JFK Act? And ultimately, the government decided that they did want to take the film. And by taking it, that meant that uh, some decision had to be reached on what's called just compensation. So this is basically if the government decides that they want to take your property, they have the right to do that, but they have to pay for it. Right. And it was very difficult. It was a very difficult thing to establish because no one knew how much the original film was worth. It had never been you know, valued. I mean, no one had ever, we had never thought of selling the original film. It was um, entrusted to the National Archives. So ultimately, in the year 2000, an arbitration panel, mutually agreed upon by our family and the government, assessed the value of the film at $16 million. And that was how much was paid for just compensation for the taking of the film. And I think it's really important to say that, you know, for our family, although this was a very difficult time because there was a lot of media attention and it was very uncomfortable. And our family would not have sold the original film. You know, we would never have put it up at auction or anything like that. But when the government took it, of course, we were not um, in a position to walk away from, you know, establishing its, its value. So it was, it was difficult all the way around. And, um, and we followed suit in terms of my grandfather's actions by, then donating the copyright to the film to the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, which was um, a very significant charitable contribution. Again, trying to balance individual profit with a sense of responsibility to the public good. Right, and honoring your grandfather's value for tzedakah that was evident from the first transaction that took place, right? Yes, and those values were extremely important to my father. You know, the the primary objective um, for managing the film was never about making money. Mm -hmm. There was money, and we did make money. And one of the things that I really grappled with in my book is, you know, how you make sense of that and how you come to terms with that. You know, is there a moral um, compromise involved? and, And what are the considerations? Because these things are 
not easy and not straightforward. And, you know, as a family, doing the right thing was always very important to us. But for my father, certainly, um, you know, providing for his own family was important too. Right. So it seems like really, like you said, you your grandfather passed away when you were a child. So the Sapruder film becomes kind of, quote unquote, relevant in your life at this uh, kind of conflicting time when you're a young adult and this th- this negotiation with the government is happening. How did that affect you? You know, I it was sort of going on in background. You know, in my family, we talked very rarely about the film. And even when it was in the news, it was not something that we um, really discussed at much length among ourselves. Okay. So, you know, there were certainly times when I felt self-conscious because, you know, there was an article in the newspaper or there was something um, on the radio about it. But I didn't know very much about it until I wrote this book. I mean, part of the reason for writing this book was to really come to terms with both the private and the public legacy of the film. You know, what did the film mean in American life? What was its impact on American culture and society? Uh, the question of ownership and rights and public access to important historical information. All of these were questions that I wanted to trace alongside my own inquiry into the relationship between our family and the film. Mm-hmm. Um, for my father, you know, my father was an extremely generous and moral person. And so, you know, I had a lot of faith that in telling this story, I was not, you know, going to be surprised by his actions. But it was certainly interesting to, to dig into it and see just how complex and how interesting it really was. Right. So you had to embark on some detective detective work here, I, I gather. At, at what point did you decide that? Because it was a little bit of a departure from what you were doing. You've been writing and you've been in education projects related to the Holocaust. And then this was a little bit of a departure from what you were doing. Um, and as you said, it was a story that was there with you constantly. But at what point did you say, I am the one to write this? I am taking this on. I'm doing all the detective work and I'm honoring, uh, I'm honoring my grandfather and I'm, I'm like, and, and I'm painting the picture of what it meant to the American public as well as to, you know, the film itself. At what point did you decide to do this? Um, you know, this really came in the aftermath of my father's death. Like his father before him, my father died rather young at the age of uh, uh. And he, um, you know, he, when he died, he left, you know, a lot of unanswered questions because I, I didn't interview him. He had never really um, written or spoken at any great length about the history of the film. And I felt after he died that it was very important for our family to pull together our records and make sure that everything that had to do with the film that our family was responsible for, that it be preserved. And so it was that impulse um, that that first led me to think about getting an education about the film. And the more I looked into it, the more questions I had and the more I realized that it was, in fact, um, you know, a fascinating story and one that I wanted to tell not only for us, but for for a larger public audience. 
And this is how far after your father had already sealed the deal with the U.S. government and your family had gotten the money and this chapter was quote-unquote closed. So that, that happened in the year 2000. My father died in 2006. Mm-hmm. Okay. Until 2011 that I really decided that I was going to write a book about it. So it was a long time. Wow, how beautiful, Alexandra, how beautiful. Uh, let's um let's switch gears to some Jewish um topics. Is there anything that you do in your home perhaps that maybe you learned it from your parents' household or maybe you adopted it as a an adult? Any tra- Jewish traditions that you hold on to dearly today? Oh, well, there are a great many of them, but of course at this time of year I'm thinking about Hanukkah. Hanukkah. <laughs> We have, you know, quite a number of, of menorahs that we've collected over the years, and we always light um, many of them, you know, as many as we we can, I and love it. which is which is something that my my parents always did, and you know, I think for me, a lot of the traditions for our family, as for so many Jewish families, really center on food. My grandmother. Um, Lil was a both of my grandmothers, but I'm thinking particularly of my grandmother on the Zapruder side was a was a wonderful um, cook uh-huh. and have a family cookbook of hers, and so I make oh, wow recipes, her latkes and her brisket and and that sort of thing, which is a really special way to you know connect to our family's past and our tradition to keep those memories alive. That's so amazing. Are you ru- the both families were Russian from both sides? Um. My grandmother and my grandfather on my father's side were of Russian descent. And my on my mother's side, her mother's family was Romanian and her father's family was Polish. Wow, beautiful. All right, let's do some JLP fill in the blanks. And this is the part of the show where I give you an open-ended sentence and you fill it with the first thing that comes to mind, okay? Okay. All right, I'm Alexandra Sapruder and I feel most spiritual when? I feel most spiritual when I think I feel most spiritual when I'm at, at Friday night services with my children at Temple Micah. Oh, beautiful. How many kids do you have? I have two. I have a daughter and a son. There's something, there is something magical about Friday night. I have to say it's, it is magical. <laughs> I really love our congregation. It's a, a beautiful uh, reform congregation here uh-huh. in DC and it's a very Hamish place. Um, and so I, I really do love to be there with my family. It's it's very peaceful and I feel I remember my father and my my own, you know, growing up family, that's the congregation that I grew up in. Nice. I connected to um, many, many people who are who I love who are here and many who are gone. So it's very special. Wow, I'm I'm sure they're so very proud of your work. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite mitzvah or one I feel most connected with is? Uh, I really love in terms of mitzvahs to, again, with my children, ideally, to to do things, to go um, and volunteer um, in needy communities or to collect um, gifts for the holidays, mm-hmm. clothing. I think those are the things that um, that mean the most to me. You know, we are... We have been very blessed and privileged in our lives, um, and we have benefited from a, a family that came from nothing and was able to take advantage of opportunities in America to, to prosper. And so for me, 
um, as a family giving back in, in very hands-on ways, not yeah. just by giving money, but by, you know, purchasing gifts or purchasing items or going and um, feeding the hungry is, is those are the mitzvahs that mean the most to me. How beautiful. Yeah, really getting involved. Beautiful. My fondest, sweetest Jewish memory is? I think I would have to say that that would be my B'nai Mitzvah with my with my twin brother. Um, because everyone was there, you know, I mean, I loved Passover with my father's side of the family. And I loved um, Thanksgiving, even though it's not a Jewish holiday, it's Jewish American, right? Um, and it has a very Jewish flavor to yes. it. Yes. Um, um, so, you know, all of the Jewish holidays certainly have, I have strong memories, but the thing about our B'nai Mitzvah was that everyone was there, all my grandparents, except for my, my Papa Abe, who was gone by then, but, and my parents and all of my cousins and lots of people who I loved who are no longer with us. And so that is a, a that was a time of tremendous joy and meaning. And I was very happy and proud to, um, to have accomplished this, um, you know, this, this major milestone in my life. That's so nice that you still remember it like that. That's so beautiful. Um, yeah. Something I wish I had learned about Judaism growing up is? I think I would say, I don't know if I would wish to learn it about growing when I was growing up, but I think I wished to know more about, um, like collected Jewish wisdom, you know, mm. writings of, um, Jewish theologians and thinkers. That, those are the things that I miss that I'm interested in now. Right. Uh, and I think that it would have been, it would have been great to, to know more about that growing up. Um, but I've become more, I have to say that I've become more interested in Jewish history and Jewish culture and uh, Jewish theology as I've gotten older, which I think is not uncommon. Good for you. Um, Good for you. I embrace more and more as I as I get older. Yeah, it's not uncommon. And luckily, nowadays, we have so much accessible and available, I mean, translations of anything and everything that we'd want to learn. So that's that, you know, our grandparents certainly didn't necessarily have access to all that Jewish learning. Right. And also, I think my family did a pretty good job of giving us an education. I mean, we went through religious school, we mm-hmm. had our mitzvahs, we I taught in the religious school, you know, we we celebrated all the holidays at home. I mean, we were not a strictly, um, you know, conservative or orthodox family, but we did, those things were embedded and imprinted upon us. And so I do feel that, um, and I'm doing what I can to, to do that for, for our children as well. Very nice. Um, you sort of addressed this one, but maybe there's something else. When I give tzedakah charity, I like to give to... I like to give it to needy communities in Washington, D.C. Oh, in your own hometown. Beautiful. And and finally, I'm Alexandra Sapruder, and today I'm most grateful for? I'm most grateful for my family. It's it's not a very original (laughs) thing to say, but I'm most grateful for my family and my friends. You know, we, we have just been very fortunate. There's been, you know, I've always been surrounded by an incredibly loving and supportive family and we've stuck together through a lot and this is true for my friends as well and I just think that that is something that shapes every decision that you make you know if you grow up in a family that um that loves you and values you for who you are um you know you anything is possible 
Yes, yes, absolutely. So beautiful. Thank you, Alexandra, so much. What's next? I mean, this was a huge endeavor, a huge project. I mean, what do you see coming? <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of things coming. I mean, I, right now I'm doing a lot of work. Um, I'm actually curating an exhibition for Holocaust Museum Houston. Oh, cool. Yep, about diaries of teenagers who wrote during the Holocaust and through genocide and, and other international conflicts through the present day. So that is a very small but but powerful, I think, exhibition that, that I'm working on right now that will open in a few years when the Holocaust Museum Houston, Holocaust Museum Houston reopens um, in 2019. Yeah, and I'm cool. doing other consulting work in, in education, and I'm thinking about new books. I haven't quite settled on what it will be, but... Um, I, I hope that, that there will be something new for me to sink my teeth into very soon. Amazing. Well, I, yeah, I forgot that you, you actually lived in Houston, right? No, I've spent a lot of time there. I never lived there, but I have done a lot of work with Holocaust Museum Houston, mm -hmm. a very special organization. And yes, um, I've taught there a number of times and I um, have great, wonderful relationships with the museum's education department. And so I continue to develop projects with them, which is which is very exciting. I love that. Very exciting. Beautiful. The book again, everybody is 26 seconds, a personal history of the Sapruder film. And everybody can find it on Amazon or anywhere books are being sold. Alexandra, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks to Alexandra for stopping by. This is a fascinating book. Grab it on Amazon or anywhere books are being sold. 26 Seconds, a personal history of the Zapruder film. Alexandra can be reached at alexandrazapruder.com and she's on Twitter at azapruder. You can find a copy of the audio and the free transcript of this interview and much more back at jewishlatinprincess.com. I hope everyone had a wonderful Hanukkah. I need some rest, that's for sure. Next week, it's music, not one of my talents, but definitely my guests. I have Jewish singer Francisca on the show. Stay tuned for that. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit JewishLatinPrincess.com.